epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. It may be America's favorite sporting gun, but more and more, the AR-15 is being used for its original intended purpose. And sports is not it. The whole context got on the ground. They know people are going to die, and they do nothing about it because it's not about sport. It is about sales. Welcome to the Real Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. You just heard an excerpt from David Scott's 2019 story about the AR-15, a weapon that's long been at the center of this country's gun debate, wildly popular among sportsmen, but as you've likely heard by now, also the clear gun of choice for mass shooters. We first reported on the AR-15 in 2016 after it had been used in a number of deadly attacks. And in the years since, the gun has grown in popularity, but also in infamy due to its continued use in mass shootings over and over again. Pulse Nightclub, AR-15. Las Vegas, AR-15. Sutherland Springs, AR-15. Parkland, AR-15. And just recently, Buffalo, Uvalde, and Tulsa, AR-15, AR-15, AR-15. On this installment of the podcast, you'll hear an excerpt from our 2019 report that explores how the gun industry has successfully used sport to make the AR-15 America's favorite rifle amidst great controversy and the backdrop of repeated tragedy. Then we'll be joined by Wall Street Journal reporter Zusha Ellenson, who's writing a book on the history of the AR-15 to discuss how this one gun gained such a foothold in American culture. That interview to come, but first, here's part of David Scott's 2019 report. How many do you own? How many ARs? Quite a few. (laughs) Quite a few. Um, More than 10. Joe Farewell is an expert sports shooter, but says that the AR-15 is so popular because it is uniquely accessible to shooters of all levels. Why more so than other guns? Ease of use, capacity, and rate of fire. These are very light recoiling rifles. I mean, my my five-year-old is able to handle that. But the same qualities that have attracted sports shooters to the AR-15 by the millions have also drawn the attention of another very different group of Americans. Mass murderers. We first reported on the AR-15 in 2016, after the gun was used to carry out massacres in Aurora, Colorado. I got people running out of the theater that shot. Newtown, Connecticut. There's still shooting going on, please. And San Bernardino, California. The shooter's supposed to be in a parking lot with a machine gun. Since then, the death toll has only mounted. There's a shooting going on at the school. 17 killed in Parkland, Florida. 26 killed in Sutherland Springs, Texas. Somebody ran in there and started shooting everybody. 58 killed in Las Vegas. The whole context got on the ground! 
It may be America's favorite sporting gun, but more and more, the AR-15 is being used for its original intended purpose. And sports is not it. This is a gun designed to kill as many people as possible in the shortest period of time. Is that fair? Yes. Jim Sullivan would know. He helped design the AR-15. The bolt goes all the way back to here. We spoke to Sullivan in 2016 about the gun's origins. It was back in the 1950s when the U.S. military desperately needed a weapon to compete with the notorious Soviet-made AK-47. After more than two years of experimenting, Sullivan's team finally developed the AR-15, later issued to U.S. troops in Vietnam as the M-16. The hits on the enemy were just fatal, almost anywhere. One guy had been hit in the ankle and it killed him. Why? They couldn't stop the bleeding. I mean, there was just so much damage. It was more lethal than any cartridge that was fired by any army in, the, in history. Sullivan told us that what makes his gun so lethal is the high velocity of the bullet, combined with the tremendous damage the bullet is designed to do when it enters the human body, a theory he once tested by firing at bags of pig guts. What happens when your AR-15 is fired at those bags? Blows up. It doesn't go pierce it and go through. Right. It enters straight on and then, then almost immediately tumbles. And that was the way of estimating what the wound effect would be yeah. if you shot a man. Right. It was going to tear him up. Oh, yes. U.S. military officials promptly made it the Army's standard rifle for the war. But back home, gun industry executives saw the gun's other potential, to make them millions of dollars, if they could market and sell it to American civilians. Thus was born the Sporter. What better name to call a rifle a Sporter? The name was a ruse, says author Tom Diaz, who has researched the gun industry for more than 20 years. A ruse to convince customers and lawmakers that this gun was appropriate for civilian use. How harmless does a Sporter sound? Now it's no longer a battle rifle or, or an assault rifle. It's just sport. Who's against sports? America is a country that loves sports. So it was an industry makeover of a military gun under the banner of sport? Yes. It's a wonderful sales device because the industry had to divert attention from its killing power, its lethality, its intended military use to something more benign. In the years since, the industry has walked a delicate line. In ads, they've played up the AR-15's heritage, telling consumers they too can own a mirror image of the gun used by U.S. troops abroad and police SWAT teams here at home. But in lobbying legislators, they've sung a different tune. Following massacres committed with the AR-15 and calls for it to be banned, the industry has insisted the guns are not weapons of war, but merely a sporting good. Literally tens of millions of law-abiding citizens like me use modern sporting rifles for hunting, recreational shooting, and home defense. I can tell you our modern sporting rifles are not assault rifles they're made out to be. That new term for the gun, the modern sporting rifle, was coined by the industry's chief lobbying group, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, or NSSF. NSSF Senior Vice President Lawrence Keene told us in 2016 that the AR-15 is fundamentally unlike its military counterpart. Is the AR-15 a military rifle or a civilian rifle, in your view? It, it's a civilian rifle. It's a modern sporting rifle is the most popular rifle being sold in the United States today and it is uh, most decidedly not a military uh, firearm. 
Keane said the difference is clear, that military firearms are fully automatic, able to fire a stream of bullets with a single pull of the trigger, while the AR-15 is semi-automatic and thus fires more slowly, only one bullet per trigger pull. So that's where you draw the line between semi-automatic and fully automatic in this class of gun. Right, an M16 is an automatic rifle, and uh, machine guns or automatic rifles are heavily, heavily uh, regulated. You can't go into a gun store and buy a, a machine gun or a fully automatic firearm. But when Stephen Paddock opened fire on a country music festival in Las Vegas in October 2017, killing 58 people, his arsenal of AR-15s rivaled the fastest machine guns, firing at rates of up to 500 rounds a minute. That's because Paddock had upgraded his AR-15s with one of these, a $100 plastic attachment called a bump stock which allows an AR-15 to fire at fully automatic speeds. Bump stocks were banned after Paddock's attack, a welcome development for critics of the AR-15. This morning, we completed the process to issue a new regulation banning bump stocks. But for those intent on keeping their ARs firing at top speed, it was merely an inconvenience. That's because in how-to manuals for sale online, and how-to videos free on YouTube, you can learn how to simulate a bump stock with a belt loop. Yes, a belt loop. Let her rip. Or even just a simple rubber band. And then you're just gonna stretch it around the trigger guard. Meantime, the AR-15 has continued to be the gun of choice for mass murderers. We are coming on the air at this hour with news of a school shooting in South Florida. This took Just a few months after the Las Vegas massacre, 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz took an Uber to his old high school, armed with a gun and a plan. My goal is at least 20 people with an AR-15. He shot nearly three dozen students, killing 17. Fred Gutenberg had a son and daughter in school that day. I get a call from my son. He goes, there's a shooter at my school, and I can't find Jamie. And I'm hearing bullets. And I, and I said, where are you? He says, I'm running. I said, you keep running. I will worry about your sister. You run. And unfortunately, the bullets he was hearing were on the third floor, and they're probably the ones that were killing his sister. Jamie Gutenberg was a 14-year-old freshman when she died. Amid his grief, Fred Gutenberg started to research his daughter's murder and the gun behind it. He learned that Jamie was one of the last of the 34 children shot by Cruz's AR-15. Does it ever occur to you that had it been a different gun, he wouldn't have gotten to mm -hmm. 30, 31, 32, 33? Mm -hmm. All the time. And I'm glad you asked that question. I have no tolerance for people who say the gun was not a factor. When these incidents happen, that is the weapon that is designed for mass carnage. We wanted to ask the NSSF why the modern sporting rifle continues to be chosen by mass murderers, but they declined to speak with us. But in our previous interview, NSSF's Lawrence Keene told us that he can't answer for those shooters. I can't speak to why those individuals use that particular firearm. Sometimes it's a function of what is available to them. They're horrific events, but um, these are Firearms that are purchased by law-abiding Americans for lawful purposes after a background check. 
But Fred Gutenberg says he holds the NSSF and the gun industry it represents in part responsible for his daughter's death. They know people are going to die, and they do nothing about it because it's not about sport. It is about sales. I'm now joined by Zusha Ellenson. He's a reporter for The Wall Street Journal who's reported extensively on guns in America and is in the process of writing a book about the history of the AR-15. Zusha, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. What about this gun, the AR-15, led you to want to devote an entire book? Yeah, I mean, you have to look no further than the news of the last couple of weeks. You had three mass shootings in a row where the perpetrator used an AR-15 style rifle. So for us as journalists, we've been covering these for years. We wanted to understand where this gun came from, who invented it, how did it become so popular? Why did mass shooters want to use it? And that's really what began our research. And we found a fascinating story. You note that it has become such a staple in the news. It's become uniquely infamous because of its use in these mass shootings. But it is just one of many guns in in wide civilian circulation. So how would you describe its cultural, symbolic, and, and commercial significance more broadly in America? Absolutely. So let's start with its commercial significance. It has become the most popular rifle, best-selling rifle in America. Today, there are about 20 million AR-style rifles in circulation. That's quite a few. Um, for many years now, it's been one of the fastest-growing segments of the market. These guns can be found anywhere. You can buy them at most any gun store. You can buy them online, have them delivered to a gun store near you. You can buy the parts online. You can build them at home and you can buy them for as cheaply as a couple hundred dollars. You can switch all the parts around. They're just ubiquitous now in America. And what about the cultural, the symbolic significance? There is no gun in America that symbolizes our country's divide over guns more than the AR-15. Not even close. I mean, you go back in history, you never saw people carrying around posters of handguns or shotguns to gun rallies. Now you go to rallies around our country and you see people on both sides of this issue holding images of this gun. After Parkland, you saw students marching in the street with images of the AR-15 with a red X through it. On the other side, you see gun rights advocates carrying it around as a symbol of Second Amendment rights. And how we got here is a fascinating story. If you go back in time to the 1990s, crime was high. Americans wanted their government to do something about guns. There were Democrats in the White House and Congress, and they passed a federal assault weapons ban. It was one of the most wide-reaching gun bans in our history. And in that ban, they included the AR-15. And we can talk more later about whether that ban actually worked. But ostensibly, that ban prohibited the sale of new AR-15s. And after that moment, that gun became a symbol for gun rights advocates. Before that, it was kind of a niche, niche product. It was an oddity. It had been used by radical fringe groups and some curious gun owners, but it was really not a big thing. After the government um, banned it for 10 years, it started to become the symbol for gun rights activists who said, you can't take that gun away from me. It's now become this line in the sand we want to draw for our Second Amendment rights. And after the ban lapsed in 2004, that only grew because after each mass shooting, uh, Democratic politicians would get up there and say, we want to reinstitute the assault weapons ban. We want to ban AR-15s. 
And gun rights supporters, uh, gun owners, they would run out to buy these because they were worried they were going to be banned, but also because it was a symbol of their commitment to their cause. And now it has become synonymous with the Second Amendment. You told me before we began recording that even within the gun industry, prior to this culture shift you're describing, there was a discomfort, almost an aversion to AR-style guns and this more like militaristic weaponry and tactical gear. That comes as a surprise to me. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the most fascinating parts of the story. In America, we think everything has always been like it is right now. But in fact, the popularity of this gun is just very recent. And the acceptance of this gun by gun owners and by the gun industry is very, very recent. So the first time this gun was sold to civilians was in the 1960s. And the story there is that Colt, um, storied gun maker, was building M16s for the military. They wanted to build a civilian version of the gun, which they called the Sporter. That's what we now know as what we now know as sort of AR-15 style rifles. And they started selling this gun and they marketed it to hunters. They said it would be lightweight. You'd have more follow-up shots, but it was not popular at all. They sold a couple thousand a year for decades. Um, hunters weren't interested in it. They liked their woodstock hunting rifles. They liked, they sort of prided themselves in accuracy. They didn't think you needed that many rounds to take down whatever game they were hunting. And we talked to some of the early makers of AR-15s, some of the guys who started these companies that started building them in the 80s and 90s. They would show their wares at NRA shows and NRA members, these dyed-in-the-wool hunters, would walk by their booths and give them the middle finger. They didn't want to see AR-15s on the floor of the NRA show. Now, the NRA itself always supported AR-15s, but its members were not interested. They thought it was for wannabe military types. They thought it was for people who wanted to play Rambo. They didn't consider it the province of hunters. And it was even more dramatic on the industry side. You have what's called the National Shooting Sports Foundation, and that's sort of the lobbying group that represents gun makers in America. And they put on the most important trade show in the gun world every year. It's called SHOT Show. And for years, they had an unofficial ban on military imagery at that show. Anyone who showed anything with a military stance was told to take it out, out of their booth. And finally, it came to a head where these AR-15 makers said to these mainstream gun makers who were running the show, look, our, our product's becoming popular. We want to be able to show it. And they sort of forced their way into a more prominent spot at that show and into a more prominent spot in the industry. The branding of the AR as a modern sporting rifle and really pushing its utility for sports shooting or hunting, in your eyes, how instrumental has that been to mass popularizing this particular gun? It really started from the semantics around the gun debate. So when it started, the gun debate, gun makers were actually calling AR-15s assault rifles. They marketed them that way because they wanted to draw attention to the military origins of the gun. But quickly, that term was taken by gun control activists who said, we want to ban assault rifles. It had this really kind of like ominous connotation, they realized. And so they won the rhetorical debate there. And the, the gun rights advocates were sort of on the defensive. They wanted to find a new term to describe these guns. They couldn't call them assault rifles anymore. So they've switched to tactical rifles. And for a long time, even into the 2000s, they sold them as tactical rifles, still had that military law enforcement connotation. Then as sort of mass shootings began to tick up and you had another sort of renewed gun debate, the industry decided they, they wanted to rebrand again. And the term they chose was modern sporting rifle. 
And that was in 2000, I think in around 2009, 2010, when they really started pushing that term out. And they wanted to portray the gun as one that was used by hunters. It's just sort of like the rifle 2.0 is sort of how they imagined it. This is the modern gun for hunters all over. And they really pushed out that image. They had videos. They harangued journalists into using the term. But honestly, no one uses that term. I mean, you look at it, you see it in press releases. But if you're in the gun world, you go to the NRA convention, everyone calls them ARs. Everyone calls them AR-15s. No one calls them modern sporting rifles. And that's very symbolic of this whole effort to turn them into a, a sporting firearm. If you look at surveys of what AR-15 owners do with their guns, hunting is pretty low on the list. Yes, some people definitely use them for hunting. There's no arguing. People use them for hog hunting, for coyote hunting, for varmint hunting. But it's obviously not a good gun for big game hunting like deer hunting. And so what people say in these surveys, which were taken by the gun industry, by the way, is that they use these guns for target shooting primarily. They buy them for self-defense for other reasons. But hunting is usually pretty low on the list. So it is interesting. There has been this big push to say this is a hunting weapon, to market it to hunters and so forth. But that's still not really the primary use of AR-15s in America. The NSSF, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, they've been on the front lines of this effort to sell the AR as a sporting rifle. People hear often about the NRA, but tell us about the NSSF. How significant is their influence today? I mean, what's really interesting about them is that for a long time, they were sort of the staid industry lobbying group, and they were behind the sort of to the rear of the NRA. The NRA was leading the charge on all the lobbying Congress. They're very strident, no compromise, all that sort of stuff that we know. But as the NRA has fallen apart in the last couple of years, the NSSF now has taken a more prominent role in lobbying. And we actually, in talking to our sources, they're on the Hill now working on bills. And it's fascinating to me to see their rise as the NRA is sort of crumbling in some ways. Um, they do have a big influence on certain industry issues that are not as prominent as the sort of the red meat gun issues in America. So one really important bill they played a big role in, and one that plays a big role in the history of the AR-15 and the future of the AR-15 is this bill in that was passed in 2005. And this came after the gun industry was just being bombarded by lawsuits in the late 90s. Gunmakers were being hammered at that time, just lawsuit after lawsuit, blaming them for the role that their guns were being used in murders and their guns were being used by criminals. And this is, you know, coming off the high crime 1990s. And so they looked to a Republican Congress and a Republican President George Bush to save them from these lawsuits. And the NSSF helped write a bill that limited the liability of gunmakers when their guns are used in crimes or in violence. The bill is very clear. It says if, if your gun is used to kill or in the commission of crime, it's not the gun maker's fault legally. So for years after that bill passed and was signed by George Bush, there have been really no successful um, attempts to hold gun makers liable in shootings. And what happened recently is that the Sandy Hook parents, the parents from that horrific shooting in 2012, they sued Bushmaster, the maker of the AR-15 that was used by Adam Lanza that day. And they made this interesting legal argument. They said, we're not going to sue you over the use of the gun in the shooting. We're going to sue you because your marketing was negligent, that you were engaged in this sort of aggressive, macho, military-style marketing. There's this famous ad where the Bushmaster said, consider your man card reissued, the big picture of an AR-15. It was They put it out in Maxim magazine, really trying to appeal to young, young men. 
And what the parents from Sandy Hook, they made the argument that that sort of advertising was also appealing to troubled young men like Adam Lanza to mass shooters. And they said that Bushmaster and its owners, Remington, were negligent. And everyone thought that lawsuit doesn't have a chance in hell. But what happened earlier this year is the gunmaker, which had gone bankrupt, decided to pay $73 million settlement to settle this case over the negligent marketing. And to me, that's really one of the biggest things um, that may impact the future sales of AR-15s. Already, you've seen the marketing change around these guns. You've seen a less aggressive, less macho style marketing. And even when I went to SHOT Show the year after that lawsuit really started getting traction, you saw that the AR-15 was not featured in the same way it was in prior years. The question is whether that will change how many AR-15s are sold or not. And that that has yet to be seen, but it may affect how mainstream gun makers deal with this weapon. I know you mentioned some shift in the marketing of this gun, but the industry has in the past certainly marketed the AR quite clearly to children. I saw at this year's SHOT Show, they unveiled a new product that they called the JR-15, basically an AR lookalike cosmetically designed to make kids feel like they're shooting an AR-15. Yeah, this this issue goes back a long ways. If you go to SHOT Show, you'll see a little pink, little blue, little different colors painted on different types of rifles. Um, but certainly with the AR-15, we've seen in the last decade an attempt to uh, bring in younger customers. And the way that starts is by selling these 22 caliber AR-15 lookalikes that are really light, easy to shoot for kids. And they've been promoted in magazines aimed at young um, sportsmen, young target shooters. Um, there's articles, there's advertisements, very, very much aimed at young shooters. And that's one way they've been trying to get younger folks interested in this type of weapon. The other way, of course, is, is video games. And anyone who's played video games know that the, the AR or its military cousin, the M16 or M4, are featured in all these first-person shooter video games like Call of Duty. And, and that's a really interesting story because the gun makers didn't necessarily seek those opportunities out. Video game makers in the past two decades have been wanting to make their video games really realistic. And as they built them, they came to the gun makers and said, can we use you know the rights to your images of your guns? They, they use name brand guns in their video games. And the gun makers said, sure. I mean, for them, it was free marketing, that, that sort of thing. Having those guns show up in video game after video game where kids spend countless hours, I think that's really drawn in um, younger people to be interested in buying this type of gun. But there are other ways that they also market to young customers, which is that they license their designs, their names to uh, BB gun makers. And if you go to SHOT Show or anywhere, you see all these BB guns um, that look like AR-15s too. So, there, yeah, there's certainly a lot of effort to market to younger customers by, by the firearms industry. I'm always struck by the fact that after these mass shootings, while much of the country seems outraged and upset, gun sales and automatic weapon sales, they go up. Absolutely. So more than any other gun, the AR-15, its popularity has been driven by these cycles of what the industry calls itself fear-based buying. They call it fear-based buying. And there's really few other guns that are as sensitive to the fears of, of the American public as the AR-15. So after mass shootings, after Sandy Hook, what you saw is Democratic politicians like President Obama, like Dianne Feinstein come out and say, we're going to ban the AR-15. And so people ran out to buy them and people wanted to have one before they were banned. And so after each subsequent mass shooting, 
Um, even though, right, it was likely that such bans were not going to pass, um, the rhetoric of, of those bans really drove a lot of people to buy the guns. And certainly the rhetoric put out by gun rights groups also drove that buying as well. I mean, they, they stirred up the fear. They would say things like, Obama's going to come take your guns. And so that only amplified the fear-based buying. And you had fear-based buying around not only after mass shootings and calls for gun control laws, but also around elections. If people are afraid that a Democrat is going to come into office, such as 2016, when Hillary was running, everyone was sure she was going to win. And gun makers just built more AR-15s than they ever had in the history. And that was because they believed that she would scare people into buying a lot of AR-15s. I mean, what subsequently happened was interesting. Trump won and no one bought AR-15s. And so gun makers were left with this huge inventory. Many went bankrupt. You know, it was called the Trump slump. They couldn't sell an AR-15 to save their lives. And so, yes, there's this panic buying that affects AR-15 sales more than any other type of gun. And I assume the same thing's happening now um, after these mass shootings where you have a lot of talk about banning them once again, and I'm sure people are, are running out to buy them. Historically speaking, Zusha, looking at laws implemented on the state level or the now expired federal assault weapons ban, have those measures been shown to meaningfully mitigate the use of AR-15s in general and specifically in these sorts of attacks? Yeah, that's a great question, Max. I mean, you hear the president these days calling for a new assault weapons ban. You hear Democrats all over calling for a new assault weapons ban. Uh, what's interesting to note is the history of how these have worked, as you point out. The first one um, that was passed on the federal level lasted from 1994 to 2004. And when that came up for reauthorization, there was a number of studies done and they couldn't conclusively find that that ban had reduced gun violence in America. Um, interestingly, though, they couldn't really measure its effects on mass shootings because there were too few, statistically speaking, to say whether it had an effect or not on mass shootings. So at the time when they were going to vote whether to reauthorize that, the research said, no, nah, it didn't really make that much of an effect. And one of the reasons it didn't have its intended effect is the way it was written. So when it was written in 94, they banned, I think, 19 weapons by name specifically. And then they banned a number of features that these guns had in common, like a pistol grip, um, like a flash hider, like a bayonet lug. But they didn't add any language that would ban the internal workings of the gun. So what happened is gun makers just looked at the ban, they read the language, they read the fine print, and they said, oh, we can make the same guns without these features, without the pistol grip, without the flash hider. And they actually replaced the flash hider with another little metal tip on the gun that looked exactly the same. And so they started selling guns during the ban years. And a lot of people don't know this. They sold more AR-15s during the ban years than they sold before the ban went into effect. And they, they were called, they called them compliant AR-15s is what they called them. And they just sold them without the offending features. And for the companies that had guns that were banned by name, they just changed the names of the guns. And so in that way, the ban was not very effective at stopping these guns from being made. I think subsequently what you've seen after the ban sunsetted, you've seen mass shootings increase a lot. And so there's some questions of whether, well, if the ban had stayed in place, would that have meant that mass shootings might have not increased so much? And that's a question we really can't answer. Um, but certainly during the time the ban was in place, it didn't do that much. You look at statewide bans, and a few blue states have state assault weapons bans, California, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, a couple others. But what's interesting to see there, too, 
is you'll see cases like the Buffalo shooter, and he bought an AR-15 in New York where they were supposedly banned, and he just made a few adjustments to make it like a normal uh, AR-15, and he found some high-capacity magazines pretty easily. So it just shows that the bans, if you have a little ingenuity, are easy to get around. So that bears the question, given the ease with which gun enthusiasts can retrofit guns, is there such thing in your mind as a viable ban on these weapons that would be clearly defined and clearly effective? If people wanted to ban these types of weapons and all political and cultural considerations were put aside, you'd look at countries like Australia, New Zealand, and other European countries where they really banned whole classes of semi-automatic weapons. But we're here in America. We're not in Australia. We're not in New Zealand. We have the Second Amendment, which neither of those countries had. Supreme Court has interpreted it to mean that individuals can own firearms, have the right to own firearms. And so I don't see any sort of wide-reaching ban ever passing on the federal level in America because of that, because of the politics of it. If you look at the efforts to reinstitute a ban after 2004, they've fallen short every time, even after Sandy Hook. I mean, after Sandy Hook, Sandy Hook we, I talked to gun industry executives who said after Sandy Hook, they were sure AR-15s were going to be banned. They were just waiting for it. You talk to people throughout the country in those weeks after Sandy Hook, people said, yeah, of course, of course. But as the months went on, it just became clear to even the White House that the ban wasn't even viable in Congress. And it, it went down hard. I mean, it did not come close to passing after Sandy Hook. And I think after that, people realize, I mean, this this is not an issue that's ever going to get anywhere on the federal level. Well, Zusha, we will continue to follow this closely. And uh, we thank you for coming on today to share your insights. Yeah, it's an absolute honor to be on here with you, Max. I really appreciate the work you guys are doing. And that'll do it for today's Real Sports podcast. Check out the premiere of the next Real Sports on June 21st. We'll be back with a new podcast next month. And a quick reminder to everyone listening, you can watch all recent episodes of Real Sports with Brian Gumbel on HBO Max. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next time.